The following program is sponsored by Cleveland Right to Life and is responsible for its content. Welcome to From the Medium, a daily report from the front line of the pro-life movement, discussing two worldviews that are driving our culture in opposite directions. From the Median asks, which side of the road are you on? What direction do you want our culture to go? Tune in as we plan the route that takes us back to the culture of life. And now your host, Molly Smith. Good evening and welcome to From the Median, where we are concerned with the middle ground, not just to understand both sides of an argument, but also to awaken the consciences of those who are neutral or indifferent to this, the greatest civil rights movement of all times, the pro-life movement. This evening, we continue our Bringing America Back to Life series. Tonight, we will feature a presentation from our 2023 convention. Our speakers' ideas will inspire you with principles, experiences, and wisdom as they join us to pave the way back to life through prayer, action, voting, and education. I am pleased to introduce to you Pam Stenzel, a person conceived in rape and now on the front lines as director of Alpha Women's Center, a counseling center for women undergoing crisis pregnancies. Pam is the Client Service Director for Community Pregnancy Clinics in Central and Southwest Florida. She has produced training workshops on sexual health and relationship education, also known as SHARE, for staff and volunteers in life-affirming pregnancy centers. Her experience has taught her that before teen pregnancy and STD rates could decline, teens' attitudes towards sex first had to change. Desiring to bring that change, Pam started speaking nationally, full-time, and is in great demand nationally and internationally. Pam serves on the board of Personhood Florida and spearheads the Living Exceptions Outreach for Personhood Alliance nationally. Pam also serves on the board of directors for Safe Haven Baby Boxes and directs their national crisis hotline. You'll be inspired and uplifted by hearing this exceptional presentation, answering the rape exception with insights and wisdom from her personal experience. Good morning. So good to be in Ohio. And and so usually they put me like really late in the day where people are falling asleep because I'm loud and fast and used to teenagers. So, so, so good that I get to do this early with you this morning. So as you heard, um, I have been involved in the pro-life movement, mostly in pregnancy centers for, for many, many years. I started my work uh, in Minnesota, lived in the, the wonderful state of Minnesota, the Minneapolis area, for 29 years. I have three children. They're all grown. When my youngest son went off to university, he said, Mom, I'm going to Texas. He went to UT Austin. He goes, I'm going to Texas, and I'm not coming back to Minnesota. I said, good, because your dad and I are moving to Florida. I have had enough of Siberia and uh, just needed an airport. So we moved to the Tampa Bay area. Someone maybe should have warned me a little bit about moving to Florida during menopause. That, that might have not been the best decision there. But, uh, but I love it there and uh, have had the opportunity since moving to Florida. And, and part of it is, too, because I, I, my speaking schedule was so profound that that's really all I was doing was traveling around talking to kids about sex and then it started to kind of wane a little bit where, well, well mostly because um, elections have consequences. And we had a lot of work going on in abstinence education around the country in public schools. And then uh, uh, Obama was elected and um, the, he hired someone to be the, uh, what do we call it, DHHS secretary, who's kind of involved in the Sprands grant money that went out for abstinence education across the country a woman by the name of Kathleen Sebelius. And uh, interesting enough, the first year uh, after she became DHHS secretary, they were having a conference for all of the abstinence educators, all of those who had received grants. And by the way, the state of Ohio like got 90% of the grants. We used to joke, it's like, why don't we all just move to Ohio? Because they have all the money for abstinence education. But they were doing this thing, and, and, and the grantees who received those grants had to come to D.C., so I get this call from Sibelius's office saying, will you come and speak at this conference for all the grantees? I'm like, do you know who I am? Like, so I didn't say no, right? So yeah, I'll be there. And uh, I didn't have to attend the conference, so I did what we do and we're speakers a lot of times. And I showed up at the, the um, hotel after the conference had started. And of course, my colleagues are there. And they said, Pam, you won't believe what happened. I said, what? 
Kathleen Sebelius got up in front of all of the abstinence grantees and said, what you teach your kids at home about sex is all on you. It's fine. But if you're going to talk about, or you're going to do sex education and with our money in the schools, uh, you're going to talk about abortion, birth control, and condoms, or you will lose your funding. And then she said, abstinence doesn't work. I said, she said that out loud. Because I have the stage in the morning. I got up the next morning. Their grantees were all sitting there. Kathleen with her little friends from DHHS. And I said, I heard last night that someone told you that abstinence doesn't work. And I don't know what medical information you have that I am unaware of. But last I checked. Abstinence works 99.9999999999% of the time. And the one time it didn't work, we have Christmas. Since abstinence doesn't work, stupidest thing I've ever heard in my life. Anyway, that was fun. I got hooked off the stage later at that point. <laughs> I'm used to it. It's all good. So, uh, so I... Um, uh, we'd been traveling around speaking, doing all this. And then obviously COVID hit too, which kind of affected those of us who speak for a living. And then I was kind of home and, and I just said, you know what? I need to go back to my roots. I want to reinvest, you know, the, the later part of our lives. I'm a grandma now of two beautiful grandchildren. And I, I just want to go back to where I started and where I, I started was in the pregnancy clinics where I started was working with young women there. And so it, it's been a privilege to work with community pregnancy clinics. Uh, we operate five clinics in Florida, Naples, Fort Myers, opened the Sarasota clinic. We literally sit in the parking lot of Planned Parenthood. It is awesome. The day we flung those, uh, shingles up. And then the last clinic, uh, that I just opened, uh, with the help of our organization. And, and I've been spending most of my time since 2019 is in Gainesville at the University of Florida. And I'm right across from the football stadium and have got, gotten to spend the last uh, three years uh, really involved with the university students. And so it's, it's been fantastic. Uh, all of us get involved in pro-life for various reasons. And um, I think, look at, let's see if I have it at PowerPoint somewhere. <gasps> look, I do. I never do this. If any of you have heard me speak, know this, because when you speak in high schools, you're lucky to get a mic to work. So asking them to have any other equipment. So um, I'm going to try it. My good friend Ryan Bomberger is like the king of it, and I wish I could be as good as him, but, um, but you'll deal with me. So we get, we get uh, involved uh, in pro-life for different reasons. Mine is very personal. So over 50 years ago, a young 15-year-old girl became pregnant and had a lot of difficult choices to make. Maybe more so than some teen girls, she was raped. But this young girl chose to give her child life and then to place that child with an adoptive family, and that child was me. My biological father is a rapist. I don't know my ethnicity, but I am still a human being, and I still have value, and I do not believe that my life is worth less than yours simply because of the way I was conceived. And I do not believe that I deserve the death penalty for the crime of my biological father. And I have listened to the rhetoric my whole life, my whole life. Listen to people say, well, every child should be wanted and planned. I've heard this said in the church. Well, I wouldn't have an abortion. That's horrible. I wouldn't kill my child. But if it were rape, you're a mistake, Pam. I don't believe that. I believe that every child is wanted by someone. And I believe that God in his mercy had a plan for me. And I can't explain that to you and you can't me. Don't try. I was every Bible professor's worst nightmare in college. You want to talk about the sovereignty of God and free will of man? Because I have a question and be really careful how you answer it. Did God plan me? I memorized a verse in Awana when I was little that went like this. I knew you before the foundations of the world. Formed you in your mother's womb. Did that mean me? Or did that just mean you? 
Did God look down that night in November of 1964 and say, oops, what am I going to do with this huge mistake right here? I don't really know the answer to that. I'm going to be honest with you, and I've struggled all my life. But let me tell you what I do know. I know that my God is so awesome and so amazing that he is capable of taking your worst pain, whether it was something you chose or whether it was something that was done to you. And my God can make something very beautiful come from that. That's amazing grace. That's redemption. I have not had the opportunity to meet my birth mother. As an adult, uh, when I turned 19... I opened all of my records. I was, uh, I was born in the state of Michigan and, uh, and lived in Grand Rapids, Michigan with my family for until I went away to college. So I went to the state of Michigan. I opened up my records, and I said if she would choose to find me, that my records are completely open to her. I did find out at that time that my biological mother was not only 15, but was in foster care at the time. I, my life was spared by the pro-life people of the state of Michigan. Because in the 60s, abortion was not legal, even in the case of rape. I almost could guarantee you, had I been conceived in 1974 instead of 1964, I probably would have been killed by the state. So I've not had the opportunity to meet her but I've been praying for her since I was four years old. She's my hero. And one day, I'm an, I, I pray that I'm going to wrap my arms around her and get to tell her that I love her because she loved me. Loved me enough to give me my life and then loved me enough to give me the next most special gift I was ever given, and that's my family. I'm the oldest of eight children, Seven of us adopted, every color of the rainbow in my family. We are the United Nations by ourselves. My brother, just younger than me, is the, the bio child, the real one. My parents tried to get pregnant for seven years. Uh, they adopted me, and three weeks later, mom found out she was pregnant, had my brother. And then never again, so adopted six more. So there you go. But my brother's birthday, I sent him a birthday card. I said, dear brother, on your birthday, I just wanted to remind you. You open it up, it says, I was planned, you were an accident. (laughs) We tease each other a lot in my family. But I know that that amazing family was a gift from a very scared 15-year-old girl. And I will forever be grateful to her for that. I have spent my entire life walking alongside women experiencing an unplanned pregnancy. Because I know that what my birth mom needed in that horrible moment of trauma, what she needed in the probably, and I pray to God, was the most traumatic moment of her life. What she needed was not to have me ripped violently from her womb. Was not to repay violence with more violence. What she needed was someone to love her. What she needed was someone to come alongside of her and to say, we're going to be here for you. We're not going to walk away. We're going to walk with you every step of this journey to bring help and hope. I have held children in my arms that I have saved from the death camps of this nation by merely walking alongside their mother and saying, I can help you. What do you need? We'll do whatever it takes. We're going to be right here. I had the privilege of sharing my story in high schools all over the country and around the world and, um, and, and then shared my story with anyone who would listen. And I, was, I got a call from a woman by the name of Rebecca Kiesling um, about, a, oh, it's probably been more than a decade ago now. And Indiana was having an election and there was a representative by the name of Murdoch who made a comment that children who were conceived in rape were planned by God. Of course, the media and the, the, you know, the same folks, Murdoch is a horrible person. He said God plans rape, which is not what he said. 
And so Rebecca said, Pam, come to Indiana. We, we need to do a press conference. We need to continue to remind these people that when you talk about the rape exception, that you're actually talking about people. This is not a political issue. These are human beings' lives that you're speaking of. So I go, and I met a young woman by the name of Monica Kelsey. Monica Kelsey lived in Indiana. Uh, she was conceived in rape, abandoned as an infant. She was a firefighter and paramedic, but she wanted to start sharing her story. Pam, I want to be able to talk to tell people my story. And, and so Monica and I kept in contact, and I got a call to, to go to South Africa. I was doing a two-week tour in Johannesburg in Cape Town, and I said, listen, Monica, come on. If, um, if uh, you can pay for your flight, I'll take care of you once we get there. And then while I'm speaking, I will give you time to tell your story and, 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 you know, we'll spend two weeks. Please, Lord, I need to spend two weeks with this woman in the same hotel room. Give us grace. And we're going to get through this. It's going to be awesome. Listen, it was, it was amazing. It was a God thing. We end the tour. We're walking into a church in Cape Town, South Africa, and built into the side of that church on the outside wall was what looked like a, a bank safe deposit box. And it said baby safe. And I'm like, we're both like, what is that? They said, we had so many children abandoned the pastor told us around this church, and the last one, some boys were playing soccer in a, in a, a garbage bag, kind of began moving, and um, these young boys went over to it, and there was a little infant uh, boy, placenta still attached, in that garbage bag. Um, he was sa- his life was spared. He was adopted by a church family. They named him Moses, and the, the pastor said, no more, not on my watch. And so he built this device into his church that when a mother would open that door, an alarm would sound, they would place baby inside this temperature control device. Uh, when she shut the door, the door would lock. And within, in, in Cape Town, it was too long. It was 10 minutes. But within a period of time, someone would be at that box to retrieve that baby. Monica's flying back on a plane. And she said, we, why don't we have these boxes in the United States? And on a Delta napkin returning from Cape Town, South Africa, Safe Haven Baby Boxes was born. And uh, the first box went into her fire station in Indiana. Governor Pence signed our initial bill. And um, today we have 135 Safe Haven Baby Boxes in nine states. We're working in other states to bring them there in order to spare uh, babies from uh, abandonment, illegal abandonment. Yeah. And last week, we had three babies in six days safely surrendered to Safe Haven Baby Boxes um, last week. It was a busy week for us last week. Uh, 130, or we've, I've helped 134 women safely surrender their children face-to-face contact. And as of Sunday, we had 27 uh, surrendered in boxes across our country. So here's the, the reality. We've been working on the issue of life from the very beginning, throughout, and, and at the very end. So why am I pro-life? Why are you pro-life? Oh, like my little thingy here. I don't know. There we go. Why am I pro-life? I'm pro-life because... Abortion is the intentional killing of an innocent human child. Anybody, will you agree with that? Okay. So I am not pro-life because a baby can feel pain at 23 weeks. That's how I am pro-life. I'm not pro-life. I am pro-life because abortion is the intentional killing of an innocent human child child. And here's the problem. Every time we pass a law and we've been doing it for 40 years, I've been watching. I mean, I was only eight or nine and 73, but I've been watching every law we pass. The pro-life community throws, can't kill a baby after 23 weeks because it can feel, feel pain unless you were, unless it was conceived in rape. Cause I didn't feel pain at 24 weeks. Is that what makes it? 
We, we, the one that blew my mind a few years back was, was Texas, actually. They passed a law that a woman had to see an ultrasound of her baby before obtaining, before obtaining uh, an abortion unless it was rape. Then that mother doesn't have to see the ultrasound. That mother doesn't need to be given any other options. Because, of course, the best and most important thing, what people should do when they're raped and become pregnant, is have an abortion. That's what we've said for the better part of my adult life. That's what I've heard, not from the other side, by the way, from people who call themselves pro-life. And I I want you to ask yourself this, and ask it hard, because I've been asking it for a long time. When you throw, if, if you're in a battle for life and for legislation, and you have this law that will protect life, and then you say, except in the case of rape, will the Democrats who do not support or who do not support, like who support abortion through all night for all, would they go, okay, I'll sign on to that bill that you just said because the rape exception is there. One Democrat, somebody tell me, one Democrat that signed your pro-life legislation because there was a rape exception. I would love to hear it. It never, who is putting the exception in? It's people who call themselves pro-life. Why? I don't understand. Principles of personhood. This is, I'm just going to throw this up here. I hate speakers who like read. Here are our six principles of personhood. This is why we are pro-life. And the basic is this. Human beings, my, my equality is based on the fact that I'm human. From the very beginning, from conception, I am a human being. Not on, except this, except, we don't want to kill human beings in the womb unless, unless, except, and then, and if. You water down and actually ruin your argument, by the way. Uh, I, I put this quote from Representative Josiah Mag, Magnuson. I, I, I one day would love to meet him. I, I just want to give him a hug. I want you to hear this. I will read this now. When we talk about children conceived in rape, incest, and uh, fatal fetal anomalies, we are talking about the most vulnerable and innocent, the people who are disfavored by society. There is a stigma to being conceived in rape. It is the state's job to say, no, these people matter too. I have been called the spawn of Satan. I have been told that I was going to be a horrible human being because my father was a rapist. I, 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 I can tell you, I was on a, a, a radio show. Radio is the best. I hate Zoom now because now I have to put makeup on. Radio is the greatest. So I'm on this radio program with Dublin, Ohio. It's literally like four o'clock in the morning in my world. And so I don't know if you've ever done radio, but I'm, I'm, I, I get to talk when it's my turn and, and what they, they, they play the, the commercials like in your ear while you're waiting before you go on. So prior to my going on, there was this man and the reason I was even on this show was because there was a man saying that we should be able to, to, um, abort, take the lives of children who are conceived in rape because, they're going to turn out to be monsters and they, they have those children's, I mean, spawn of Satan, basically they have no right to life. And then, and also we need to be able to kill the children with disabilities because those children will have no quality of life. They don't have the same value. They have down syndrome. He started naming all these things. He's going on and on. And I'm sitting there going, Oh, and then the commercial comes on in Dublin and they're hosting the world's special Olympics. And all through the commercial, please come and volunteer and help because these amazing children from all over the world for the special Olympics. End commercial, we should kill children with Down syndrome. People have lost their ever-loving minds. 
It's like, no, the value of that person is based on their humanity. Okay? So, so help me understand the reason for the rape exception. And I've listened to many of them. Well, before I go there, let me be really clear. One of my good friends, Christy Hoffaber, was conceived in incest. And um, <laughs> it's very, very difficult. Her mother, her, her biological father is also her biological grandfather. Her mother was being abused and used for years. Her mother experienced four abortions because every time she got pregnant, what did the abuser, what did her father do? Dragged her to the abortion clinic to get rid of the evidence and take her right back home and continue to abuse her and abuse her and abuse her. Finally, she became pregnant with my friend Christy at 16 years old, and she had had so much pain and endured so much that, that she just said, you know what, I can't do this anymore, hid, ran away, and finally told about the circumstances of, of how she became pregnant. She delivered Christy, placed her with an adoptive family, and her father was finally prosecuted and went to jail. Christy is a pastor's wife in uh, Illinois on the border between St. Louis and Illinois and has shared her story. It's a good friend of mine. She's an amazing woman. Her life is of no less value than yours and mine. And can I tell you something? Her life actually played a huge part in saving her mother from constant abuse. When people throw this rape except, oh, but what about, and I love it when they throw like the worst thing, the five-year-old who got pregnant, you know, they throw out the most horrifying example. And, 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 and here's the thing. I believe that the child in the womb from conception is a human being with value made in God's image. I believe that abortion hurts women. Physically, uh, psychologically, that abortion produces trauma. And if I believe those things to be true, then why would I take someone who's experienced so much trauma and add trauma to the trauma? Right? So, and I like, like to paint there... I hope you know what's going on with trafficking and rape and incest and abuse. The abortion clinics are hiding this. Are, are you all aware of that? I mean, we have them on tape. So women who are raped or who are trafficked are experiencing multiple, multiple abortions because the abortion covers up the crime. Just, in the case, just like my, my friend Christy, these women are being abused they're being, uh, it's incest, it's rape, it's trafficking. They're being used sexually. And the abortion clinic allows the traffickers, allows the abuser to continue to abuse. It never stops that. And so when we say, well, oh my goodness, this is heaven. Oh, they need an abortion. It's like, no, because what the abortion is going to do is further damage that young child and, and allow the, the rape and incest to continue every time. So here's what we need to fully understand. Abortion in the case of rape is misplaced compassion. When you advocate abortion in the case of rape, you are taking the life of an innocent child. You are further harming the mother. You are adding trauma to her trauma. You have helped someone. Someone in this scenario gets help. Who is it? The rapist. What you've helped is the rapist every single time. The person who you thought you were having compassion for is not the person who's receiving the compassion. It is not compassionate for the child. It is not compassionate for the mother. And 100% of the time, you have helped the perpetrator. 
And I, I don't believe people who say, well, I believe in abortion in the case of rape are looking to help the perpetrator. I could be wrong. Perhaps they want this to continue. But the reality is that's really not usually the case. Let me tell you about spending all of my life. Now, listen, I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a legislator. I'm a mom. I'm a grandma. And I'm a counselor. My background is in marriage and family therapy. I've spent my entire adult life walking women through unplanned pregnancies. That's what I've done. I have helped countless women who became pregnant as a result of rape or sexual assault. If you came into my pregnancy clinic for help and I did your pregnancy test and you told me that if the test is positive, it was because of this incident, this rape that happened to you. You were drunk, passed out, college campus, you don't know who dad is. Give me the whole scenario. If that test turns positive, am I going to walk back into that counseling room with that woman who has just found out that she's pregnant and say, you know what, you need an abortion? Every other woman that came in, I would say, oh, no, we need to help you. There are things we're going to give you. Abortion can hurt. It, it might feel like the easy way out. It might feel like it's going to give you relief. But the reality is there's going to be a time you regret this. You, this. No, I am going to look at her and, and encourage her to choose life. When you talk to women who conceived in rape and, and, and the ones who chose abortion especially will say, I was pressured. Everyone around them told them what? Get an abortion. Everyone around them. And you know what? Our culture, our laws... The way we talk about abortion in our pro-life world has told that mother that she can't get through the trauma, that the best thing for her would be for her to kill her child. Can I tell you that I have never met one woman who aborted her child as a result of rape who did not deeply regret it? The same pain. And for some of them, the tears that I've had to listen to, that was the only child they ever conceived. What a devastation. Can I also tell you that I have never, in 30 years of counseling women, had a woman who chose to carry her child to term as a result of rape, who either parented, safely surrendered, or made an adoption plan for her child, come back years later and say, I wish I would have killed my child. Hasn't happened. Now, I've got some years left. It might happen. Not been my experience. I can give you the data. Women who were raped and have abortions because of that rape have horrible time with recovery have horrible time in counseling. Abortion didn't fix the rape. It didn't undo it. It didn't make the incest go away. It just added more trauma. It added more pain. Listen to the voices of women who have been there. The other thing I'm going to tell you is that children who were uh, conceived in rape are lovely, wonderful human beings. Amen. <laughs> And uh, so when I listen to the, the talk, and you have to learn not to watch people's Twitter and Instagram crap because, you know, it just comes out of that. Just bleh. And it's really even hard to answer it properly. But just recently, a live action had put something up, and I'm reading the, the responses of people. And they're like, how dare you make a person, a, a, a baby who was conceived in rape is going to hate themselves their whole life and never be able to. I'm like, have you ever asked someone? People say, oh, we can't, we have to have the rape exception because the mother, oh, she can't, you can't force her to carry the rapist child. She'll never. And I'm like, have you been raped? Do most of you who use those excuses, are appropriating my pain. You're appropriating my pain. 
until you're the one who was raped, until you're the one who was conceived in that instant, I don't want to hear how you think you would feel. Talk to women who were raped, who, who went through incest, who were trafficked, who went through sexual assault, and ask them whether abortion fixed their pain, whether abortion did bring with it trauma. Talk to those of us who were conceived in rape and find out whether we're thankful for our lives and our families. Because there's where your answer is. Every time, there's where your answer is. And, and, it, and to me, it's, it's not only misplaced compassion, now you're appropriating our pain. Are you following me? Am I making sense? Okay, so don't appropriate my pain when you, when you, when you advocate for that. So I am going to end with this. At the end of the day, when I finally ask people to come down, come down to the brass tacks here, you're going to throw the, the rape exception every time you put a freaking law on the way. You're going to throw me under the bus. Oh, you'll tell me you'll come back and fix it. You'll come back and get me. I'll matter someday, but not today. So every single law, there you go, throwing that exception in. When it comes down to misplaced compassion, appropriating my pain, all of those things, at the end of the day, you say, well, Pam, we agree with you. We don't want that exception, but we can't win without it. Have you heard that? We can't win. It won't, we can't pass it. It won't win. We have to. And understand, let me re-remind you that it's not the Democrats because they will not compromise. They believe what they believe in the right to abortion through all nine months of pregnancy, and they are not playing compromise games with you. So who are we compromising with? People who call themselves pro-life. That's who we're compromising with. Let me tell you what. I know the battle is tough, right? We're in a battle. You, you all know that. I know it. Goliath is huge, And we, as a movement, have been playing the army of Israel for a very long time. The giant is taunting God's people. Just one of you, come on out here and fight me. Look at me, I am this giant. And the armies of Israel, we can't do it. Oh, no. Oh, oh. And a little shepherd boy gets sent to the front lines for his big brothers. And he's like, what in the heck is going on? This giant Philistine is mocking you, and why aren't you doing anything? Oh, he's big. He's giant. Have you seen? David's like, I'll I'll go. So David, little David, I'm going. And and he comes up to Saul, and he said, you know what, David, this is a big battle. Put on all this freaking armor. Like, just put it on. I could just see David. He's like, there is no way. This is not working. Take all your crap off that you told me is the only way I can win. And I'm going to go take my slingshot, my five little stones, and I'm going to take this giant down. Oh, to have the faith of David. Oh, to have the faith of David to say, you know what, John, he's scary, but my God's bigger. My God's bigger. I can do it with stones. The other story I love from the Old Testament is, uh, is the spies, the 12 spies, Joshua and Caleb. You with me? You know this story. This is not as big as David and Goliath. 12 Spies were sent by Moses into the promised land to scope it out and to, and to tell, come back and report whether or not they would be able to win the battle. Only two of the 12 leaders, Joshua and Caleb, brought a good report back. Joshua and Caleb saw the exact same people, cities and giants, as the other 10 spies. Despite what they saw, they were adamant in their belief that we will be able to overcome. Two of the 12 came back and said, Moses, our God's bigger. We got this. And 10 said, no way. It's too much. Battle's too big. We cannot win. How is it possible for 12 people from the same positions of leadership to be sent on the same mission to see the same land and yet come back with such different perspectives? Dare I say to you, 
It's a lack of faith. It's a lack of faith. It's a lack of taking God at his word and believing his principles. So here's where I'm going to end this with you. I have spent my life uh, doing things that everyone said I could not do. Especially talking to teenagers about sex. What's What's the success of that? They're all screwing everyone. Why bother? (laughs) And I said, because it's not my job to keep them from doing that. My job is to tell them the truth. What they do when they walk out is up to them. Embrace your herpes, but don't tell me you didn't know, because I told you. Mm. So I have spent my life saying, my job is to speak the truth. And this quote from St. Teresa of Calcutta has marked my ministry from the beginning. Because let me tell you something that I believe with all my heart. I believe and know that one day I will stand before God. I will not stand before my legislator, my governor, my president, my pastor, or my bishop. I will stand before Almighty God. And on that day, the only thing I want to hear are these words. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. God did not call me to be successful. He called me to be faithful. And I believe if we commit to that, brothers and sisters, God's got this. God's got this. We need to be faithful. Awesome. Bless you. Amen. Hey. Thank you. Bless you. Okay. Okay, thank you so much. Um, Pam finished a few minutes early, which is good. That means we have about 15 minutes or so for her question and answers. We have some great questions here. A reminder to everyone, though, if you don't hear your question from your index card read here, uh, Pam will be doing a follow-up interview with Molly on the From the Media and Radio program, and you can be assured that Pam will, or that uh, Molly will ask all of these questions that don't get asked. Um, Pam, I'll stay here so that you can see where I am as I read these to you, and I will yeah. sit so I don't block the people behind me. And our first question, this is actually repeated, Pam, on multiple cards. I'll just ask it from one. How and when were you told that you were conceived in rape? Have you always been a woman of faith? God bless you. Oh, so awesome. These are fun questions. So I always knew I was adopted, right? In, my, in our family, even though I was the first one, it was just what we knew. It was, in fact, I went to kindergarten probably and went, my name's Pam, I'm adopted. Because, like, it's awesome, right? And then I started to realize not everyone thought it was as awesome. Um, so, so I knew that. I was given non-identifying information about my biological mother. Um, my parents shared all of that information with me. I, my, my birth mother was Irish, English, blonde, blue-eyed, five foot two, fifteen. And I turned out a little dark. I, I, I went gray, so now my hair is whatever color I want it to be. But, <laughs> but I'm darker. I have very dark eyes. <laughs> you know. Anyway, and I grew up in West Michigan. I grew up in the lovely town of Grand Rapids. And uh, in my day, because I remind you I'm old, um, it was very Dutch. Anybody been to Grand Rapids? Everybody's name was Van Der Zma, Va, Van Von V. And Dutch people are tall and blonde. All my friends, it's like one of these kids is not like the other. So, you know, it's always kind of like, what in the world? On the, the, so that was my mother's side. On my father, on the father's side, there was nothing. There was one word under ethnicity. It said American. I'm like, I don't know what that means. So, um, Actually, I, 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 I was hoping it met American Indian, and if I could prove it, and there's a casino attached, there could be money involved. But, but I will tell you that I have far more Indian in me than Pocahontas. I know that. 
There is no way she is more Indian than me. But, but the nice thing is I get to be whatever I want, right? So um, as the eldest of many adopted children, we had the same um, lovely caseworker who had to come and do home studies. Any of you who have worked or have adopted know the, the, the little deal. You get the baby, and then the caseworker has to come and check out. Everything's going well. So Miss Arts was our caseworker through my two brothers that came from Korea, now, I was about fourth or fifth grade when we got our first brother from Korea. I, got, this was, I went to all of my friends in fourth grade because we picked our brother up at the airport. We are going to the airport to pick up our brother. Doesn't everybody get their brothers from the airport? Because <laughs> that's where mine came from. So uh, Miss Arts would come and, and, and mom would be like, everyone on your best behavior. Miss Arts is coming. Like, no, we're going to tell Miss Arts we don't want the new brother and she can take him back. So I had a relationship with Miss Arts. And uh, when I was in high school, Miss Arts uh, retired. She, she had cancer, so we knew that she probably wasn't going to be living long and retired from the St. Louis Baptist Children's Home. And, um, and they had a big picnic for all the families that she had helped, all the, all the adopted kids and the families. And it was a lovely picnic. There were a whole bunch of us. And I realized this might be the only time I get to speak to Miss Arts. And I, I cornered her and I said, Miss Arts, why don't I have any information about biological father? And Miss Arts said, Pam, your mother was in foster care when she was 15 and she was raped. So at 16 or 17, I'm a junior and senior in high school, I, I found out the circumstances of my conception. And I'm telling you, um, I struggled theologically because it's who I am, right? I, uh, I, I had a lot of questions for God. I had a friend, uh, one of the mean girl friends before we had Instagram, <laughs> give me a paper done by a Kelvin College professor that parents shouldn't adopt children because they were... Um, they were born out of fornication or something worse, and they would not be one of the elect. We would not be able to go to heaven because of the circumstances of our conception. And I just went, how can that be true? Right? So it was a big struggle with God, and I think the biggest struggle between God and I was, did, did, did you plan, do you have a plan for me? Did you know from the beginning, or, or did you just kind of go, oops, you know, okay, this happened, now let's do the best we can with the giant mess. And, you know, those are theological questions that aren't easily answered. But what I do know is that God uses even the most painful circumstances in our life to do amazing things. It's called redemption. It is redemption. I am an in-your-face to Satan. Satan, you meant for death, destruction to come out of this horrible act. I'm going to, in your face, bring redemption. So, yeah. Thank you. Um, the next question, Pam, is what do you say to those who argue that a mom who is raped does not need to look at her rapist's face every day? Wow. A mom who is raped does not need to look at her rapist's face every day. Well, first of all, mom does not have to parent this child. There are myriads of options for all women when it comes to pregnancy that don't involve killing their child. She could make an adoption plan, and she could hand this baby off to an amazing family. Do you realize that, that infertility among women in the United States is, has increased by over 500%? We have 1.5 million couples waiting for babies. Infant adoption in the United States is very difficult. When we have a safe haven surrender, my freaking hotline, and please don't call me. I'll, <laughs> I want to adopt a baby. Get in line. We have 800 families waiting for every baby that becomes available under the safe haven law. Do you understand that? So you do not have to parent your child. You can take that child 
and make an adoption plan. You can walk into any fire station or hospital or whatever facility your states allow and hand that baby to that firefighter or you can find a box and do it completely anonymously, right? So that's insane. Then, again, when people say, how did you word that? A mother who's been raped has to look at the face of her. Again, don't appropriate her pain. Ask the woman who's experienced it. And I got to tell you, and I know you've had others speak here who were, who were moms who, who, whose their child was conceived in rape who will tell you, they, I'm not, that is not the rapist child, that's my child. I can't imagine. You know, I, find me the woman who, who would say a year, two, five, ten years after she had her child conceived in rape that she can't look at the child because she sees her rapist all the time. It's insane. It's, it, it's it, it, craziness. Yeah. Glad you mentioned safe havens again because we have a couple questions here about safe havens. Number one is who and how does an institution obtain a safe haven box? And two, in what states are safe haven baby boxes? How do we find out? Okay, so you can get Pam's almost answer, and then you can go to shbb.org. And actually, that website is in my bio in your program, Safe Haven Baby Boxes, shbb.org. And there will be exactly how you do that, how you change your state law. All you're doing is taking your existing Safe Haven law, and you're adding this device as a legal surrender. Does that make sense? So, so the Safe Haven law is intact, and all you're doing is saying, along with being able to walk that child and have a face-to-face surrender, which scares some girls, that's very difficult for some of these moms, uh, this device is a way that she can do that without having to look at someone. I had a mom, I was counseling on the hotline, she delivered her baby by herself at 2 a.m., Googled how to clamp off the umbilical cord with shoestrings. It is insane. She calls me and she goes, I said, listen, there's no box. At that time, there were no boxes close enough to her. And I said, you're going to need to walk into that fire station. I said, you can leave a note. Just look at those firefighters and say, I'm surrendering under the safe haven law and walk away. You don't have to answer any questions, none of that. Whatever you want baby to know, leave with baby and you're always welcome to call me. She was petrified, couldn't do it, wouldn't do it, wouldn't go to the fire station face-to-face. Small town, some of you know what that's like, living in a rural town. Finally, I convinced her to call 911 and have the paramedics come to her. She chose to go to a Walmart parking lot. Again, she didn't want them coming to her house. And she surrendered in a Walmart parking lot. And later that week, we found out, I found out from, from birth mom, that... When she handed that baby over to that firefighter, it was a guy she went to high school with. You've been listening to Pam Stenzel, Director of Alpha Women's Center, a counseling center for women undergoing crisis pregnancies, and presenter at the 2023 Bringing America Back to Life Convention. From the Median is listener-supported. Visit our website, fromthemedian.org, for further information or to make a donation to continue to make this radio program possible. Email us, radionews at fromthemedian.org or call 440-668-4049. Through our fromthemedian.org website, you can download this or previous programs for your listening pleasure or sign up to receive our weekly preview of upcoming guest interviews. Tune in every weeknight at the same time to listen to another great interview on From the Median as we plan the route that takes us back to the culture of life. This program has been sponsored by Cleveland Right to Life and is responsible for its content.